We are now the people we have become. We have been formed into our present condition. When we were born, we were already wrapped in a blanket of influences we didn't choose. Our country with its culture and language. Our family with its blessings and dysfunctions. And our time in the history of the world. As we grew, so did our capacity to make choices. We chose friends. We developed hobbies and interests. We set our hopes and dreams on future states we wanted to live into. We've also developed strategies for dealing with problems, obstacles, failures, and disappointments. Some of our strategies were helpful. Others, probably not. But we were formed by all of the choices we made. We can think of formation in many areas. We were formed physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and socially. But today, we're going to consider how we have been formed spiritually. At the start, we need to consider something important. We are still in the process of being formed. The process is ongoing. It does not stop once we achieve physical maturity. It does not stop at age 30 or any other age. Neurologists tell us that our brains can form new connections, learn new information and skills until we draw our final breath. The expression that told us you cannot teach an old dog new tricks may be true for dogs, but it is not true for humans. We are constantly being formed. They call this capacity neuroplasticity. Our brains are not like concrete that is hardened, never to reform, but more like wet clay that can be molded into new shapes. We can change opinions when we learn new information. We can change habits. We can recover from addictions. We can, for example, develop a meditation practice and become less anxious and reactive, even if that has been our lifelong pattern. Formation is, an, is ongoing, including spiritual formation. We are all in process. The journey continues every day. In Jesus' time, his people were formed spiritually by the twice-daily practice of repeating a creed. They called it the great Shama because, the first, because that was the first Hebrew word in the creed. Shama means hear. The creed from the book of Deuteronomy says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This creed was for Israel the main thing to keep the main thing. It established the central understanding that God was one, not many, and that God alone was worthy of our worship. It was a creed full of promise that following God's commands would lead to good outcomes. The creed established a set of spiritual formation practices, daily recitation, instruction to children, reminders carried with you and worn, reminders on your doorposts and gates. By repetition over time, the concepts of the centrality 
and the goodness of God would become deeply rooted so that the faithful practicing Israelite would eventually know it, as they say, not just in their heads, but in their very bones. So the great Shema creed was the right answer when the scholar of the law of Moses asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was. Notice that Jesus' focus is on the response to God, not on obligations. The Shema says we should love the Lord our God. We should think about that. God is not needy. God does not desire our love out of some kind of hunger. God is not like humans needing regular affirmation from others to feel good about God's self. Rather, loving God is for us a natural response. It's an orientation toward the divine that receives the world with gratitude and trust. We love God because to not do so would be unimaginable. We love God for the gift of life, of consciousness, that we are here now, alive in this amazing world, able to experience it and to know that we are experiencing it. Consciousness is a tremendous gift. We alone in the universe, as far as we know, perceive its beauty and awesomeness. We have the capacity for art and music, for dance and festivals. We have laughter and joy. We have smiles and cheers. These are amazing gifts. Of course, we respond with love for our Creator God. But life is hard, too. Life is painful. Aging makes it all the more difficult. Our bodies, as amazing as they are, are vulnerable. They break down. We are mortal. We will die. Along the way, we experience the loss of people we love. We experience emotions that are hard to bear, sometimes overwhelming. We long for a sense of purpose and meaning. But we all experience doubt about the final meaning of it all. We identify with the teacher who wrote, <clears throat> Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Because it all comes to an end, no matter if you are the rich king or his impoverished servant. We can easily go down the rabbit hole of pessimism, cynicism, depression, even despair. But we need not. The beauty of reciting the Shema is its power to draw us back from that cliff edge of bleakness, to remember that life is still, with all of its pain and suffering, an amazing gift. By means of the spiritually forming practice of drawing our attention to the God who gave us life, we can orient ourselves to love. That is the main thing. Jesus did not stop there. The Torah scholar only asked for the greatest commandment, but Jesus followed up with more. He said, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. The Torah scholar had already reached the same conclusion. He completely agreed. Not only are these two commands the greatest, he said that they are, quote, more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is the same insight Israel's great prophets introduced. 
Moses' law, the Torah, goes on and on, chapter after chapter, with directions for burnt offerings and other kinds of sacrifices. Offerings of grain, oil, wave offerings, goodwill offerings, purity offerings. But none of those are as important as loving God and loving neighbor. The prophet Amos, for example, decried the conditions of his day, rampant poverty existing alongside extravagant wealth. He said the needy were being sold for a pair of sandals, and as a result, God was outraged. He said, speaking for God, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It is strong language to call the worship hymns noise, but in this exaggerated register of Hebrew poetry, the prophet expresses the insight that ritual worship, including sacrifice, was not the main thing. The love of God, who is the source of every good gift, combined with justice, the love of neighbor in the public sphere, is what God wants. It is more important than all the sacrifices, ceremonies, and songs. We do not recite the great Shema creed of Judaism. As Christians, our primary spiritual formation comes from gathering regularly to retell and remember the Jesus stories. We come together to worship the God Jesus loved. We gather to remember Jesus' way of living. We are formed by Jesus' practice of being with people in that beautiful, non-judgmental way, and which naturally drew them close to God's love. We keep telling the Jesus stories of feeding the hungry people, welcoming hurting people, of Jesus telling stories about lost people and inviting everyone to awaken to the presence and reality of God's kingdom. So Jesus said to the Torah scholar who showed that he knew that love was the main thing, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Mark's gospel ends the story there. I want to grab his lapels and shake him. What happened? Did the Torah scholar become a Jesus follower? What did he do with his knowledge that the main thing was love of God and neighbor? The story is incomplete. Mark probably wrote this story around the year 66. He did not know what was about to happen. Later that year, the Jewish civil war began as poor peasants rose up to fight the oppressive aristocracy. The peasants broke into the temple treasury and burned the records of their debts. But the Romans came to crush the rebellion, so the formerly opposing Jewish factions joined forces to fight their common enemy. After four years of horrible suffering, it was over. Everything had changed. The temple was a smoking pile of ruins. Tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people were killed, according to Josephus, and there was no more sacrificing of any kind. That war, that destruction, that loss of life was a horror. But it was not an end to Judaism. It was an end to religious life as they had known it, but it was not an end to spirituality. Jewish people came to understand that they could still recite the Shema, 
they could still practice the love of God and love of neighbor even after the loss of their former traditions. Our world has changed as well. Even within the lifetimes of the ones who have we have said goodbye to this past year, the world has changed in substantial ways. It is still changing. We are like Mark's community. We do not know the future. Our story, like the Torah scholars, is unfinished. We see trend lines, but we do not know what will happen. Will the pendulum swing back in the opposite direction, as sometimes happens? Or will the momentum keep pushing us further into the uncharted territory of deinstitutionalized religion? No one knows. But like the people who came before us, and like the early followers of Jesus, we can live lives of trust instead of anxiety. We can live lives of hope instead of pessimism. We can engage in spiritual practices of formation that pull us back from the brink of despair. We can face the uncertain future knowing that whatever it looks like and however different it is from the past, we know who we are and what we are to do. We have a purpose. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Loving God and loving neighbor. That is our purpose and will never change. We can change. It is within our capacity to keep changing. Therefore, we can face the future with equanimity and resilience, just as those who have gone before us did.